But we can only do what God calls us to do by the power of God, the empowerment of the spirit of truth. It's not by our strength. It's not by our power. It's only by his spirit of truth. And truth is revealed with a plumb line. You know, we're like dry bones, and it's God who awakens us, because we're not enough, and we need him. Um, yeah, so good. Well, good morning. I'm so excited to share the morning with you guys. Um, and it is a good morning, whether you want it or not. So turn to your neighbor, and like Bilbo Baggins, say, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Then turn to your another, to another neighbor, and say, let's share in an adventure. Let's share in an adventure. Oh, you gotta love kicking off the morning with Lord of the Rings, right? Yes. It's so good. I mean, that was the holiday, but you know, it's whatever. It's the same universe. Um, but yeah, this summer is definitely an adventure, you guys. I'm so excited for what we've got coming up. We're at the end of month one of summer already. It's May 28th. That's pretty crazy. It has flown by for us. Um, and we still have so many great things coming. Like Costa Rica yeah. next week. They're shipping out. Um, so exciting. So please, this week and, and throughout June, please be praying for our, our multi-church team going down to Costa Rica. Um, as they engage with Costa Rica. As they inform the people they come across of the gospel of Christ. Um, and that they've inspired those people to follow Jesus. And I think that's a good reminder for us as well this morning. It doesn't matter where or when we are in life. You know, our God has called us to proclaim his message. Whether that's at home or school or work or getting groceries or going on vacation, we have the spirit and the word of God in us. And he compels us to go and share. So as we get started, we can never pray enough. So let's kick off with some prayer and we'll get rolling into it. Abba Father... Lord, thank you for the morning you've given us. What a beautiful day, a day you've made. We praise you, Lord, for giving us today to worship you, to focus on you, to be with you, and to be with community. Lord, we come before you. We repent of our sins. We've disobeyed you recently, Lord, each and every one of us. Our sins have separated us from you and your life. We're sorry, Lord. Forgive us. And we ask that you'll strengthen us and encourage us to turn from our wickedness, our wicked hearts and ways. Return to you. Forgive us, Lord. See us through the finished work of Jesus, because you are the Christ. You are Jesus Messiah. Lord, would you bless your global family today, that you'd be the light in the darkness. Would you strengthen the persecuted? Would you be faithful to your children? Blind the enemy too, God. The ones who harm your children harm you. Would you wave your hand against them, plunder the plunderer, destroy the destroyer, that they would know that you are the living God, the only one who was and is and is to come, because you will return in glory, Lord Jesus. Please bless us as we proclaim you, no matter where we are in life. And bless all of your ministries at Wright State as we proclaim you. Bless AIA, bless crew, Chi Alpha, Christians on Campus, IFI, H2O, Rock Campus Fellowship, 
and all the new and current ministries and outreaches, all the Bible studies happening on your campus for your name in your name. We praise you, God, for all the work you're doing in us and through us for your campus, for your children. Lord, would you use us, use us in our obedience to meet the spiritually lost where they are, that we would show them the love that you have for them, to show them that you transform us, that you change our path to eternity from ultimate death to ultimate life. God, would you speak to us? Be in our midst. Be in our hearts. Our campus needs you. Our church needs you. We need you. I need you, God. I need you. We praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so you may we pray. Amen. 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 Well, this morning, we get to talk about Zechariah chapters 4 and 5. So go ahead, open your physical or your Bible app um, to Big Zech chapter 4. Um, we are, we'll get to there in a little bit. I want to talk about a couple other things before we dive into the passage. But Big Zech chapter 4 is where we'll be in. Uh, so this, uh, this summer, we've been working through the book of the prophet of Zechariah. And uh, as many of you have, have followed along with, with House Church, we discuss it weekly. Um, and then at Ohana services, uh, someone comes up and preaches on the chapter we're on. So for, the, for this morning, I've got three portions just to give you a quick little outline of how this is going to roll today. I'm going to share about the context, uh, the passage, and then lessons that we can learn from here. And y'all know that I'm becoming a nerd when it comes to historical context. So we're going to kick off with that. Yeah. Hey, hey, compare me to Grant, I'm becoming to love, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, so we know from the books of Genesis and John that our, our triune God, Elohim, is the Hebrew word that we're introduced uh, to the Lord. Elohim, he created everything and it was good. And he created mankind, and it was very good. But mankind disobeyed the command, the requirement of God. Mankind disobeyed God. Adam and Eve sinned against God. So Elohim, he had to be a righteous judge over man. So he condemned humanity for their disobedience. And God gave hope for a full restoration to come. He didn't end humanity right there. No, he had a plan. He still has the same plan today. And it's okay if we don't understand it. So years went by. God pursued humanity through Noah, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, with that special covenant. And these men and their families and all of humanity, they still rebelled against God. They still disobeyed the commands of Elohim. But these men and portions of their families pursued a relationship with God. God continued his promise with Joseph and the other 11 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, and then with Moses, wrapping up the, the Torah, the first five books of, of the Old Testament. And in there, Elohim revealed his personal name to Moses and to Israel, Yahweh. So the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, remained faithful to his word with Israel throughout the judges and with Saul, even though literally, like everyone, was disobeying him and disobeying his requirements. Then came David. He yearned for Yahweh, got the meaning of repentance, but he had to learn repentance the hard way still. 
because even he disobeyed the commandments of God and strayed from walking in his ways at times. And his son Solomon, not any better. He became king, had all wisdom and the most riches of the world given to him by God, but he too disobeyed the Lord. And Israel followed his lead. So all of Israel disobeyed the requirements of God even more than before. Solomon's actions set the future of Israel in their land. So the kingdom of Israel split, you know, violently became the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Each kingdom constantly had highs and lows of their relationship and obedience to God. But the kings and kingdoms as a whole, they would not fully repent. They wouldn't fully turn from their wickedness. See, and to backtrack in time for a little bit under Moses, Moses and then Joshua, the son of Nun, God delivered the tribes of Israel from slavery, from another nation, which was Egypt. And the tribes uh, of Israel, um, they saw this as the biggest showcase of the Lord blessing his people by establishing their tribes, the kingdom of Israel, in the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it came with a key principle, obedience. Yahweh will stay faithful, will you? Here's what will happen if you are not faithful to the Lord. Here's what will happen if you are. Israel had so much time to pursue faithfulness to God, but they kept choosing not to walk in his ways. So Yahweh punished the 12 tribes of Israel for their 1,000 or more years of disobedience. And in doing so, God remained faithful to his promise. Here's what will happen if you are not faithful. This stage is super squeaky, so I'm going to hop down and hope we don't get any reverb. He remained faithful even when Israel didn't. And he reverted to their pre-covenant times in slavery to another nation, this time Babylon. So God exiled Israel from their land for 70 years. That's pretty reasonable. A thousand years of disobedience, 70 years of punishment. So God exiled them, but he continued to promise them hope and salvation according to the Adamic, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic covenants. There was hope and salvation on the horizon, but punishment had arrived for a time. So God used Assyria to absolutely consume Assyria, or, uh, Israel, northern Israel and its people. And God used Babylon to destroy Judah and exile its people for a time. So only the tribes of Judah and Benjamin would live on during and after this time. And that's only because of the mercy and the promises of God that he made beforehand. So then we arrive in 539 B.C., the exile ended because Babylon fell to the Achaemenid Empire, which is a fun word to say, Achaemenid. This was led by Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Great. So that year, we get to see King Darius throwing Daniel in a lion's den, and King Cyrus was ending the Judean exile and handling Ezra chapters 1 through 4. This set the stage for our homeboys, Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua, son of Josedach, to lead the second wave of uh, exiles back to Jerusalem. 
And in just two years, 537 BC, this crew cleans up the rubble of the city and they get to celebrate their completion of building the second temple's foundation. But then 17 years go by. 17 years go by doing nothing on it. They do no work on the temple for various reasons, deception, fear, political setbacks. But then we get to 520 BC. You know, and we get to see Haggai, and he's encouraging Zerubbabel and Joshua, and also the people there in Jerusalem, to get back to work on the temple, to look forward to the promises that God has for them. In Haggai chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Haggai says from God, Do the work, because I am with you, declares Yahweh of hosts, according to the promise that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. But you see what God does there? His faithfulness is beyond a thousand years. The promise he made to a freshly birthed nation of Israel is still the promise he's holding to in the time of post-exile Israel. And he's reminding his people of that very thing. So Haggai, he receives the word of the Lord in 520 BC in the sixth month. And then again in the seventh and then Big Zek received the word of the Lord in the eighth, and then back to Haggai in the ninth month. And so God was giving Jerusalem at least monthly encouragement to build a new temple. And this all sets up the stage for where we are in Zechariah, in 520 BC, in the 11th month, which would have been like January or February for our calendar, but that's neither here nor there. So after months of laborious labor, right, attacks from the enemy and Haggai and Zechariah encouraging the people, God gives Big Zek a massive multi-movement vision to see a glimpse into the plan that God has in store and what's happening on earth from a more spiritual perspective. So these visions kick off with Zechariah seeing horns representing the nations that exiled Israel and Judah. And then craftsmen or smiths, farmhands, it's ambiguous, thank you Hebrew. Um, but these, these farmhands represent successory nations conquering their predecessor. Then Zechariah sees God having Jerusalem measured, readying for the time when he will take possession of it again. So God calls his people out of exile, even though many have returned, to this, returned by this point, even more have stayed in exile. So the angel of the Lord proclaims that he will destroy Babylon. He will dwell in the people's midst, and then they will know that Yahweh of hosts sent him to them. So then last week, we discussed spiritual warfare over a specific person, right? We got to talk about Joshua, the high priest of Jerusalem. The angel of the Lord rebuked the accuser, that we call Satan, um, and God removed Joshua's guilt sin and clothed him in fine, clean, righteous garments, commissioned him to serve God, to lead the people to follow the Lord, and to look forward to the day of promise. Which brings us to reading Zechariah chapters 4 and 5. So please follow along. I'm going to be reading from the LEB translation starting in verse 1. So verse 1, And the angel who was talking with me returned, and he wakened me as one who was wakened from his sleep. And he said to me, 
What do you see? And I said, I see, and look, a lampstand all of gold, and a bowl was on its top, and its seven lamps on it, and seven lips on each of the lamps that are on its top. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl, and the other on its left. And I answered and said to the angel who was talking to me, What are these, my lord? And the angel who was talking with me answered, and he said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my lord. He answered and said to me, This is the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by strength and not by power, but only by my spirit, says Yahweh of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground, and he will bring out the top stone amid the shouts of grace, grace to it. And the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have founded this house, and his hands will finish it. And you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things will rejoice and will see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of Yahweh, which are ranging throughout the whole earth. And I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I replied a second time and asked him, What are these two twigs of olive trees beside the two golden pipes that pour forth from themselves the golden oil? And he replied to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my lord. And he said, These are the two anointed ones, standing by the Lord of the whole earth. I looked up again, and I saw, and look, a flying scroll. And he asked me, What are you seeing? And I said, I am seeing a flying scroll, twenty cubits long and ten cubits wide. And he said to me, This is the curse going out over the surface of the whole earth. For everyone who steals has gone unpunished according to it. And likewise, everyone who swears falsely has gone unpunished according to it. I have sent it out, declares Yahweh of hosts, and it will go into the house of the thief and into the house of the one swearing falsely by my name. And it will spend the night in that house and will destroy it with its timber and its stone. And the angel who was speaking to me went out and he said to me, please look up, see what this is going out. And I asked, what is it? And he said, this is a basket going out. And he said, this is their iniquity throughout all the earth. And look, the lead cover was lifted, and a woman was sitting inside the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back down into the basket and threw the lead cover on top of it. And I looked up and saw, and look, two women coming forward. And the wind was in their wings, and they had wings like those of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between the earth and the sky. And I asked the angel who was talking to me, Where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, To build for it a house in the land of Shinar. And when it is put in place, it will be placed there on its site. May God bless the, the reading of his word. All right, you guys, that's a lot to go through in two chapters, right? So, to recap, in a sense, we know that God has declared before this little vision movement that he's calling Israel to repent, right? To turn from their evil ways and deeds and return to him, and God will return to them. God is no longer angry at Jerusalem, but now he's angry at the other nations because they furthered disaster beyond God's judgment. So God will use upcoming nations to overthrow and destroy these ones. Assyria was conquered by Babylon. 
Babylon was conquered by Medo Persia, Persia by the Greeks, the Greeks by the Romans. And Jerusalem will outlast the rise and fall of the rest of the nations. Because Jerusalem will one day be a city without walls of wood or stone or metal. Because too many people from all the regions of the earth will be there to worship God. And he will be there with them. But for this future to happen, other things have to happen first. Joshua the high priest, the people of Judah, they are in no state to worship God. They're covered in sin and filthy rags. But God forgave them and established a clean, holy nation again on the promise that they'll follow him, specifically that they'd walk in his ways and keep his requirements. Much like God did with Israel, fresh out of Egyptian slavery a millennia ago, from where we're at in 520. And God reminds them again of the promise for their future hope by saying and referencing the servant, the branch, the, one might say, cornerstone, and there will be peace. But before we get to that, we have to keep addressing the current state of affairs. There's another leader who needs to be commissioned. Joshua was the priest, but who's practically ruling the land and the nation as governor? Zerubbabel. So chapter 4, the fifth vision uh, given to Zechariah, commissions both Zerubbabel and Joshua together as God's appointed leaders. Joshua was the primary of the fourth vision, and in the fifth vision, Zerubbabel gets to be the primary. So here's the main point for all you note-takers today. The main point, it's not by strength or by power, it's only by God. It's not by strength. It's not by power. It's only by God. In the fifth vision, Zechariah sees a lampstand of gold. And this is totally, it's totally first temple imagery, you know, the, the temple of David and Solomon. The bowl was the holding place for the oil, so that the oil would flow to the branches of the, of the lamp, be absorbed by the wick, and then be burned to create light. We're also told that the trees are representative of Joshua and Zerubbabel. So, God is filling Joshua and Zerubbabel with his spirit. And the spirit of God flows out of them to the rest of the people, which is the bowl and the lampstand. You know, it, uh, we read that these are the two anointed ones standing by the Lord of the whole earth. And, not by strength, not by power, but only by my spirit. So, through the work of God and the work of God in his people, the light of God will shine throughout the whole world. The world's darkness and sin will be exposed by his anointed, and the light and truth of the Lord will be everywhere. For these seven are the eyes of Yahweh, which are ranging throughout the whole earth. Now, for today, you know, 2,500 years ish after this promise is re, uh, is said to rebuild the second temple is that not still true does not god still promise his plan not by our strength not by our power but only by his spirit because i look at our strength and we're only good enough to flee from the commands of god what he calls us to do look at the 12 when Jesus was crucified and buried, they scattered like a herd of prey at a predator's ambush. 
You know, it wasn't until God's empowering spirit came upon them during Pentecost that they actually started to do what God called them to do, to go make disciples, to preach his gospel, to baptize people. It's God who does the work. We're invited into the plan. We're invited into laboring for him and with him, you know, just like he did with Zerubbabel and Joshua, just like he did with Haggai and Zechariah, just like he did with so many others. But it's not by our strength. It's not by our power. It's only by his spirit. Cool, Aaron, that's great. Love it. Big question. Why is Zerubbabel holding a line of juicy purple fruits in his hand? Plum line. It's the wrong spelling of plum. A plum line is a, it's literally just a cord with a weight on one end. So if you dangled a string, like right here, and you tied a rock at the bottom, that's a plum line. A plum line is dangled beside a wall or something during construction to check how close the wall makes a right angle with the ground. It checks to see how perfectly upright the wall is. Some of y'all's ears just perked to that wording. That's actually smart. Right? It is smart. So Isaiah and Amos and other prophets, they use this method of measurement to describe how God will use his law as a check for how upright Israel would be. Israel had been spiritually built upright originally because God established it. But Israel had chosen to lean toward what they wanted, which was not God. And they did that for such a long time and did not stand firm on the law of God. So Israel and Judah and Jerusalem would be destroyed, just like a lone wall at an angle will fall over and collapse in destruction and rubble. So God is calling his people to line up their lives, line up their heart, mind, all that they are to the full, according to God's plumb line. That they would walk in his ways and keep his requirements, like we see in Zechariah 3. Walk in his ways, keep his requirements. Doesn't that sound like it applies today somewhere? Surely the New Testament has something along those lines. You would be correct to guess that. In John 14, verses 15 through 17, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, in order that he may be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. And I think of Luke 9, 23, when, he, um, come, when it comes to walking in his ways. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross every day and follow me. If anyone wants to come after Jesus, they must deny themselves and take up their cross every day and follow him. So to phrase that in the day of Zechariah, if anyone wants to line up their life with God, they must love God and keep his requirements and commandments every day and walk in his ways. And we can only do what God calls us to do by the power of God, the empowerment of the spirit of truth. It's not by our strength. It's not by our power. It's only by his spirit of truth. And truth is revealed 
with a plumb line. So how do you measure up to the plumb line of God? Let's look at how Paul phrased it throughout Romans. Hmm? Romans Road. No one is righteous, not even one. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Oof, right? We are all imperfect compared to the God's plumb line. When Adam and Eve uh, sinned, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and with sin came death. And everyone dies because everyone sins. So our imperfection leads to destruction. Just like a lone wall at an angle will collapse and lay in destruction and rubble. And Zechariah chapter 5 highlights this, right? There is no place for sin in God's territory. So he will destroy sin and the wicked people in his domain. And he'll send wickedness to a place of more wickedness and destroy that place too and all the people there. God's call for perfection is not just to his chosen people. It's to all the nations, to all people. And his destruction knows no excuse for not choosing or for choosing wickedness, for choosing to not be in perfect alignment with his plumb line. But like God did through the prophets, God continues his pattern here with Paul. Here's what will happen if you are not faithful to the Lord. Here's what will happen if you are faithful to the Lord. For the penalty of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we're condemned by our choosing to not be in alignment with God, but we can be saved like Jerusalem from Babylon in the time of Zechariah. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die and bear God's punishment for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right with God in his sight through the atoning blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Okay, so Jesus lived in perfect alignment with God's plumb line. And by his death in our place, God sees us through the perfection of Jesus. We still deserve punishment and destruction and condemnation, but Jesus suffered for us and frees us from collapsing like a lone wall because we're not alone when we're with Jesus. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life for them, shedding his blood. Therefore, if you openly declare that Jesus is Savior and Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. For everyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin, which leads to death. So, if we believe that our own estimation is right, we'll be sent to destruction. But if we believe that God's plumb line is right, that Jesus lived by his plumb line, we'll be made right with God. We'll be freed from death. We will belong to God. 
and we'll receive his spirit, not by our strength, not by our power, but only by God. It's not us that made the universe, right? We're not that powerful. That was God who made the universe. The prophets did not proclaim by their strength and power. It was God who gave them visions and the words to say. We cannot convict someone's heart of their sin. It is only God who convicts the heart and changes people to trust Jesus. But God still invites us into the process. God made the earth and the animals. He calls us to steward. He proclaimed and controlled prophecy, visions, dreams, events, history, and more. He uses us. He uses people for his plan, for his glory. Just like he did with Zechariah, like he did with Moses, like he wants to do with you and me. God transforms people to repent and believe in Jesus. He calls us to share his gospel of salvation through Jesus and disciple the people who do repent and believe. So here's a couple of takeaways I have from, from all of this, from Zechariah 4 and 5. The first thing, we cannot know how upright we are without looking at the one who can truly measure how upright we are. We cannot know how upright we are without looking at the one who can truly measure how upright we are. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, uh, 19 through 23, what can be known about God is evident among them, for God made it clear to them. For from the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and deity, are discerned clearly, being understood in the things created, so that they are without excuse. For they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasoning, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God with the likeness of an image of a mortal human being, or, or bird, quadruped, reptiles. So you are without excuse for not following the living God, our good creator, our good sustainer, our ruler, our king, our father. The triune God oversees the plumb line that measures righteousness, holiness, morality. If you make your own measurement to feel and think like you're upright, it's an illusion that will condemn you. And if you look to God's plumb line, you'll see how inadequate, how filthy, how crooked, how disobedient you are. But read the Bible anyway, right? It's the only word to mankind from God. And it's lasted the test of time. You'll see your sins. You know, we will see our separation from God but we also get to see how Jesus lived perfectly aligned to God and his plumb line. And it's through Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension that he saves us. And he overcomes the separation. Not by our strength. Not by our power. But only by God. The second takeaway 
I learned from Zechariah is to listen, which is kind of a scary thing to hear, which is ironic. Um, Israel would have avoided all of their crap if they had listened to God. They heard God, but they didn't listen. Um, Doctor of Medicine Kristen Fuller uh, says this about hearing and listening. When we choose not to listen to someone, whether our spouse, coworker, peer, friend, or child, <clears throat> and God, we potentially create a rift in the relationship. Sometimes we choose not to listen to another individual because we are too busy, or we don't want to hear what they say. In other words, we are telling this individual that what they are saying and feeling is not essential at the moment, and as a result, we are minimizing them. By not listening to someone or passively listening, we are causing strain on that relationship. On the other hand, if we choose to listen actively and engage with others, we are showing them that they matter, form an alliance, and strengthen the relationship. The people of Israel and Judah did not want to change their ways. They did not want to leave having a sense of self-power, and they did not want to listen to God. Not listening to God led to their relationship with him being strained, and they minimized worship of him. And we know that God is a jealous God. Israel and Judah relied on their own strength, their own power, not God. So their relationship with him developed a rift. But God has promises to keep and people to save from their own iniquity, right? We hear things all day long, but we listen to what we want. Hearing is passive. It is out of our control most of the time. Listening is active. It takes focus and is in our control most of the time. Hearing does not take energy. Listening takes energy. So will you listen to God? But Aaron, how do I listen to God? Couple steps. I think the first step is to simply be aware that God wants to speak to you. And we need to give God space to speak to us. You know, stop the busy excuses, the, oh, I'm tired excuse, or the, oh, I'm not patient enough, I can't wait that long. Stop the excuses. God does not care about your excuses. He cares about being with you. And spending time with you. You know, if you, uh, you got your best friend, you know, and you don't talk to them, is there really a relationship there? God listens to you go on and on. Sometimes he even listens to you never talk to him. Will you let him speak to you? So just be aware that God wants to speak to you and to spend time with you. But this is a two-way street. You know, a biconditional statement. There's no math people in here. <laughs> we also need to spend time seeking God. How much of a relationship do you really have with someone if you don't seek them? 
You know, sometimes spending time with God is as simple as taking your Bible, opening to Isaiah, and just read. Read the Word of God. Let His living Word speak into your life. Sometimes it's simply reading. You can go more to, to study or meditate or dive into it. But sometimes it's as simple as just reading His Word. Sometimes it's praying. And you can pray super easily through the Acts model. You know, that's giving God your adoration, confessing and repenting of your sins to Him. Thank Him for His forgiveness and who He is. And supplicate. You know, ask God to intercede, to answer your questions, you know, stuff like that. But being in the Bible and being in prayer are the foundations of seeking God. And if you don't do these consistently and frequently, y'all, my question to you is, are you really seeking and wanting God if you don't do these two things? So you know that God wants to speak to you, and you're going to rev up being in his word and in prayer with him. Cool. Then what, Aaron? Ask him to speak to you. And wait. Be patient. Make your mouth, your heart, your mind be silent. Dwell on the word of God. And wait. It's not by our strength. It's not by our power. It's only by God. And so, like Zechariah, we need to listen. We can learn that from him. He listened too. He did these very things. He looked to God for a perfect plumb line, yearned for the day that God's promise would be fulfilled. And we know that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Messiah. You know, if Zechariah would have kept talking and talking and talking and talking, There would have never been space for Zechariah to hear and listen to the word of the Lord. Would have never gotten the visions if he had kept talking. You know, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. Like in chapter 1, verse 1, 1, 7, 6, 9, 7, 1, 8, 1. It's God speaking to Zechariah. And so like Zechariah, we need to listen to the word of God. To know how we measure up. How it is God who saves us, who brings us out of exile and into life with him. And then we go and we proclaim the word of Yahweh to whoever is around us. Not by our strength, not by our power, but only by God. Let's pray. Our Father. Lord, we praise you, God. Thank you that you established morality, that it is you and your unchanging ways that are everlasting. Lord, to you be all the glory and honor, because your prophecies, you, what you prophesy is true. Your foretelling points to Jesus, and your foretelling proclaims truth in Jesus. Like Joshua the high priest, we are clothed in filthy rags by our own work. But you, Redeemer Jesus, you wipe away our filth, our guilt, our sin in a day. You clothe us in clean robes of your righteousness. We don't deserve it, Lord, which is why we give you all the praise all the more. 
God, we ask that you remove our iniquities because we have faith in the finished work of Jesus who made a covenant of blood that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Bring us close to you, God, to your plumb line, that out of our love for you, we would yearn to walk in your way, not by our strength, not by our power, but only by your spirit. Amen. 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 So as Anna and, and Ryan come up and, and kind of reset the stage a little bit, um, we're going to do some more worshiping through songs. And so I invite you guys to, you can come up here, you can kneel, you can dance, like this is for the Lord. Um, and we're also going to have uh, the, the table back there open for communion. So at any time during our songs, I invite you guys who are followers of Jesus to go back to the table, get the bread, get the juice of the fruit of the vine. But listen for just a moment longer, because I want to make sure you guys check your heart. In Matthew 5.24, Jesus calls us to first go and be reconciled to your brother. So please take time to reflect on how your relationship is with God, that your taking of communion is fully worship of him, and also reflect on how your relationships are with your brothers and sisters in the family of God. So then, after pursuing reconciliation, then take communion. If you already have, you're reconciled with everyone, take it this morning. And in Matthew 26, 26 through 29, Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And giving it to the disciples, he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And after taking the cup and giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, from now on, I will never drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of my Father. And Jesus said in Luke 22, Do this in remembrance of me. Paul explains further in 1 Corinthians 11 through 26, For as often as you eat of this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So if you guys need prayer or anything, please ask the leader by the communion, ask the person who invited you, ask me. We'd love to come alongside you guys in that way. So may God bless you guys with grace and peace, and feel free to stand and come up for worship.